Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphorical multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. I think most of us know that Alcohol is poison. It makes us feel shitty. It rarely leads to much good. And that one funny story or happy memory is often not worth the 10 other times that we found ourselves sick and tired and anxious and feeling all sorts of negative emotions that we otherwise might not have had we chosen the sober route. I'm somebody who's been sober curious for a while. I always said to myself, alcohol never leads to good things. But despite knowing this, I often get pressured into drinking even when I don't want to. And it's not because my friends are bad. It's not like they outright pressure me into drinking, but I still feel the pressure because when I come to a dinner, I want to be a part of the good vibes. I want to hold a cute beverage in my hand and feel all posh. So this episode is for all my sober curious friends who are like me, who want a fun-filled life without being dependent on alcohol or any substance for that matter. I invited Amanda E. White. She's a therapist who you might know from Instagram as at therapy for women. And she talks about so many different topics from setting boundaries to grief and emotional regulation. And one of those things that she has a whole book about is sobriety. I think when we hear that, we think of alcoholics or addicts, but you don't have to be at that, you know, rock bottom in order to choose a healthier path for you. And that's what Amanda is so good at talking about. So in this episode, you'll learn about the benefits of quitting alcohol or at least reducing your consumption of it, how to set boundaries around alcohol with friends, family, your significant other, why alcohol makes us more turned on, i.e. horny, and some ideas for sober dating 
And beneath all of that, we essentially talk about how to regulate your emotions before turning to your substance of choice. Again, that could be drinking, that could be smoking, that could be scrolling, whatever that is. I think this episode is an important reminder for us all to take a step back, to breathe, to process within before we turn to the external quick fix. So regardless of if quitting drinking is right for you or not, you can be a little less dependent on substances and thus more emotionally aware, connected, and present in your life. As I mentioned, Amanda E. White is a fab resource to learn from. She is a licensed therapist and creator of the popular Instagram account at Therapy for Women. She's also the host of her new podcast called Recovered-ish. She's the author of the book Not Drinking Tonight and its corresponding workbook, which I've linked for you in the episode description. And she also has her own group therapy practice called Therapy for Women Center based in Philadelphia and serving clients across the country. She's been featured in notable publications like Forbes, Washington Post, Shape, Women's Health Magazine, and more. But most importantly, she's just real. You can learn more about her at amandaewhite.com. And for now, please enjoy this podcast episode all about quitting alcohol and navigating sober socializing, dating, and sex with Amanda E. White. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for being on the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Since we're not drinking alcohol, I did see you have a Yeti. What's in it? <laughs> it is just water. <laughs> Quite oh, boring today, but probably Same good. <laughs> I usually have tea, but the mason jar needed some water today, as I did. Yeah. I wanted to dive right in and talk about yeah. your journey with quitting alcohol, embracing sobriety. And I want to start by reading off a post that you did really long time ago. You talk about how there's so many benefits to reducing your mm. alcohol intake. And I think a lot of people know this conceptually when they take yes. the time to think about it. It tends to all go out the window, which we'll get into later. But some of the things that I'm sure a lot of us feel in regards to alcohol is how when we avoid it, we're you know saving money, our emotions are more regulated. You wrote reducing the risk of getting certain cancers, which like the health benefits yeah. of not drinking are so, so big. Sleep quality, that's the biggest thing for me and the biggest reason why I seldom drink. Anxiety, anxiety, we can talk about <laughs> that. Yeah. Healthier skin, deeper relationships, improving cognitive function, better long-term physical health, improving memory, no hangovers, increased energy, and healthier teeth. So with that being said, I've been sober curious for a while, yeah. and I know that it makes me feel shitty, rarely leads to good things. Alcohol is literally poison to me. <laughs> but despite knowing this, why do we, or I, I'll speak for myself, why do we feel compelled to drink as a way to have fun? Because the media for many, many, many years has done a phenomenal job of showing that and really telling us that that is the way to have fun. I mean, if you dissect the marketing, especially there was a pretty big shift in marketing that happened about 30 years ago when big alcohol companies recognized that there was this whole gap in the market and they really heavily promoted to men for a really long time. And they recognized that women were not drinking as much as men. And there has been a really concerted effort to bring women in. There's literally a brand of alcohol now that exists that's called like mommy juice. There's like white girl rosé, right? There are 
drinks that are made for women, like cosmopolitans, all of that kind of stuff. So it's not just advertisements, but I see it so much now as someone who doesn't drink, but almost every TV show that you see, if they're having fun, there's alcohol there. If someone is trying to process their emotions, alcohol is there. Alcohol is just kind of like the main character of our lives. If you look at it from the media perspective and you were studying human culture, you would come to the conclusion that alcohol was the cement that glued our lives together socially. Yeah. And people go to great lengths to get it. The select few times that alcohol has led me to making mistakes as a teen. Speaking of the media, I'm my guilty pleasure is like teen coming of age. Love it. Movies, rom-coms. And even in those, like you'd think that there would be some sort of like regulation around showing underage drinking, mm. given how illegal it is to do underage yes. drinking. But they let that shit slide all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did a TikTok once a couple years ago. It was like, this is going to sound so stupid when I say it, but I don't know if you know the TikTok song that was like, emotional damage, emotional damage, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for my horrible singing voice. Maybe you can put in that, that little sound bite. I showed a lot of clips of like Gossip Girl. Literally, they were like freshmen in college, some of them in it and they were drinking like that going to bars if you think about so much teen shows it's actually wild to look at friends because friends was one i mean obviously friends wasn't really made for teens but i certainly watched it when i was growing up if you look at the oc most of the teen drama shows heavily revolve around alcohol in some capacity what was your relationship with alcohol like in your teens or let's say 20s. Yeah. So I didn't start drinking really until college. I had a pretty severe eating disorder in in high school and like very much felt like I didn't fit in, very much was not invited to parties. And then when I had alcohol for the first time before I went to college, it really to me felt like friends in a bottle. It felt like this cure for my social anxiety. I felt like a better version of myself. It was such a harsh flip for me when I went away to college because my parents weren't there. I had this like freedom for the first time. And I started heavily, heavily drinking in college. And that's really how my addiction just kind of snowballed because when my eating disorder and my drinking kind of collided, that was where things really went off the rails for me. Mm-hmm. And what are some like stories or yeah. examples of of what that looked like for you in college? Like, did it give you that social validation that you started with? Yeah, I mean, it's like anything at, at first things are great. I think for a lot of us, when we start drinking before we have those impacts at first, it did feel like it helped me make friends. I was in a sorority. I felt like it gave me this freedom from my anxiety and things like that. And then it also started to become a crutch of, I started drinking alone. I started using alcohol to cope with my emotions. I started getting really paranoid about gaining weight because of the calories and alcohol. So then that made my eating disorder much, much worse. I then was having trouble getting enough work done. So then I started dabbling with Adderall, which then added a whole new level of complexity to everything. 
by the time I graduated college, I really had pretty much lost all my friends because I was so heavily in my addiction and people rightly so didn't want to be around me because I caused a lot of chaos. I would get into terrible fights with like my best friends and say horribly mean things to them and they would try to help me and I would run away at bars and I was just not fun to be around, but I had no concept that it was alcohol. That Mm -hmm. was the problem. I thought Mm -hmm. I was a terrible person. I would beat myself up more. And I also didn't realize that the meaner I was to myself, the more I wanted to act out with, you know, my eating disorder and drinking. I'm glad you brought up the the Adderall and how like alcohol is kind of like the beginning of that because I have some close people in my life who will say they struggle with a lot of things, you know, like both diagnosed and self-diagnosed and et cetera. So it'll be everything from like sleep to like I have ADHD to social anxiety to this to that. And then I hang out with them Mm. for a week or a couple of weekends <laughs> and I see the amount of alcohol that they consume. And then mm. not only that, even if it's just like two or three drinks, which seems like little to them, yeah. right? Yeah. But when we look at the studies, like three to four drinks a week is so much. It is enough yeah. to like completely destroy your physical and mental health. So I don't mean for this to sound judgmental, but yeah. some of like what they say mm. and then what they do with alcohol like doesn't match up. I didn't sleep well. And then it becomes this cycle of like, now I need extra caffeine and then I have a crash and then followed by a Red Bull. And then, you know, the notorious cure for anxiety is to just have another drink. Next thing you know, you're day drinking. And, you know, sometimes this happens on the weekends and other times it's a random Tuesday night and then you got to bring weed into it because it'll make you calm down. And then these substances kind of like all coexist together, not to mention the pharmaceuticals and the ones prescribed by a doctor. And they all interact. (laughs) And technically there's a lot of, especially like the antidepressants, antipsychotics, like you should not be drinking with those, but it is so, I guess, socially acceptable that nobody bats an eye. And I don't think they themselves will ever want to admit that maybe it could be, you know, that (laughs) old fashioned I had. Absolutely. So After I got sober, I became a therapist. Before I started my practice, I worked for many years in a a drug and alcohol rehab. And one of the wildest things, and it's a very common thing we talk about in the addiction field, is that people get diagnosed even, whether it's self-diagnosis, not even, with borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, these like pretty, you know, intense diagnoses, but you can't separate a lot of times what is the alcohol and what is actually going on? So as a good standard of practice, like we try not to diagnose anyone with anything really until they've been sober for like at least 90 days. When you are detoxing and drinking alcohol all the time, you can absolutely have your moods look so intensely hot and cold that it looks like bipolar disorder, right? Like if you're not sleeping and then you're sleeping too much, that can absolutely mimic different symptoms of disorders and things like that. You know, people ask me all the time, what are the the warning signs that maybe you should look at decreasing your alcohol use? And to me, one of the biggest ones is if you are starting to play that game of, okay, well, I'm going to drink this amount and then I need to, you know, do this other drug to deal with this, right? And then I'm going to smoke weed, but then I need to take Adderall to curb my appetite and, right, I need to then take 
this other drug to help me sleep. If you start doing all of that, it's a pretty good sign that things are going in a bad trajectory because your brain wants to be in homeostasis by itself. It does not want you playing homeostasis for it by interacting with all these drugs necessarily. So mm-hmm. people forget so much. They're like, okay, I'm going to have a glass of alcohol or whatever to calm down to deal with my anxiety. And then they don't think about the fact that, oh, but my brain is going to actually try to counteract that depressive effect of the alcohol by producing anxiety hormones. Mm -hmm. So temporarily, yes, you feel better, you feel relief, but your brain doesn't know what's going on. It's trying to counteract it. So then the next day you're left with more anxiety because your brain is trying to deal with it. And that happens with all different types of, you know, prescriptions, drugs, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We have to be very careful with this. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. If I heard you or interpreted you correctly, you're saying that there might also be a lot of misdiagnoses going on if alcohol is in the mix. Correct. Correct. It is just very hard to know. I mean, when we are diagnosing, you're assuming this is their their state and it, it just gets very muddied. Just like if someone's trying to diagnose you with depression and you're already on an antidepressant, that could impact whether a doctor or a therapist can properly diagnose you. It's why people ask for what medications you're on. And mm-hmm. in some ways, like alcohol is a drug that impacts your mental health. So it can negatively impact if someone is trying to understand what's going on with your mental health. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would agree to your sentiment about, you know, drinking to deal with social anxiety in a way or to have more fun. One thing I've noticed, though, in my family and just kind of like the vibes that I get around drinking and what, what lures me in ultimately, I guess it's a few different things depending on who I'm around. If I'm with friends, then a common scenario is I'm like, I'm not going to drink tonight. For me, the intention is usually to save money and sleep. So money and sleep are like two big things that motivate me to not drink. (laughs) Then when I sit down at dinner, I see everybody has a drink. It's almost like a a vibe, like a style and ambiance. You want to be holding something. You feel a little bit posh. Then people start laughing and you do kind of feel left out, especially Mm -hmm. when the people around you are like a drink or two in. How do you recommend that when it comes to socializing, we better stick to our promise of not drinking? I don't give this advice always if someone is sober, because this isn't always necessarily the case. But if you're someone who is sober curious and you are just kind of stuck on feeling left out, feeling kind of weird, like you were talking about when everyone is drinking, there are so many great like mocktail options these days that I think that is just a really great way to help you kind of check yourself. Because so often I think when someone doesn't drink a lot and then they swap it out, they kind of have this realization that they're not really missing that much. And the second you put a drink in in your hand, it does take some of the intensity out of feeling left out and you can kind of realize what you're actually looking for. So I think that is a really big thing because there is this, this pressure, whether it is 
stated by people in your life, which can definitely happen. People encourage other people to drink or whether you just feel weird and uncomfortable because everyone is. And sometimes it feels like when, you know, you're of a certain age to drink and people younger than you are drinking and you feel like a child kind of in your family because you're not. You could swap out a mocktail. I think people really want a quick fix and they just want something that will give them the same impact of alcohol, make them feel exactly how alcohol makes them feel, but with none of the negative side effects. And I think it's also important to just dispel that myth that there is nothing that is going to do that. Mm -hmm. Like if that existed, everyone would do that. Oh, yeah. So I think we also have to be realistic about our expectations too. Yeah, because I'm in a circle of friends where they're like, I'm not drinking. Okay, you want to do a microdose? Yeah. Okay, I have a joint. Well, you know, I have this 5-HTP supplement. If you just take it in the morning, then it'll make you feel like that that high. It's like we're always like chasing some kind of feeling brought on by some external supplement or substance. Yes, yes. And at the end of the day, there isn't anything that can replace being with your own emotions, learning how to process them, learning how to deal with your anxiety. There is like a consequence to any hack or trick you kind of can do to, you know, escape your mental health or escape your mind temporarily. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's where we have to start shifting to like, okay, what other practices can I do to improve my mental health? What other ways can I deal with my anxiety Mm -hmm. rather than trying to have this quick fix. I mean, even when it comes to to sex and things like that, right? People ask me all the time, okay, well, what can I do to like not be present in my body like alcohol, but also not be sloppy and not have the negative impacts of alcohol? And if there isn't anything, what there is, is learning how to be present in your body. And I kind of say sometimes it is like one of the best and worst things about alcohol is it gives us the ability to like live a life that doesn't work for us because it kind of just numbs us to everything, right? Alcohol numbs the good in our life and the bad. And we can't pick and choose the emotions that we want to numb. Mm -hmm. That seems like the long-term intention and the long-term work of being at least a little bit more sober. I don't even know if sobriety can exist on a spectrum. Sometimes I feel like it's being pregnant, like you're either pregnant, or you're, not, you know? <laughs> you're either sober, or you're not. But I do like the word sober curiosity. I don't think total sobriety is needed for absolutely everyone, and a lot of people in the recovery community don't like that I say that or that I talk about how like moderation can be helpful for people. To me, the best part of sobriety, regardless, is coming into it curiously. Mm-hmm. I don't love the stopping and starting when it comes to sobriety, right? Like I'm sober, I'm not sober. I'm going to take a 30 day detox. Then I'm going to come back. It can create this sort of like binge restriction cycle. And instead I'm a really big fan of mindfully choosing. There are costs and payoffs to everything we do. So if you're going to drink really coming from the perspective of, okay, what is worth it? What isn't worth it? Sometimes it may be worth it to have a glass of wine or to like, if you're at a vineyard with like, you know, your friends, like there may not be a replicant of holding something else when you're at, you know, like a specific thing like that. But maybe if you're just hanging out with your friends, watching a movie, it is not worth the hangover Mm -hmm. or the negative impacts to have a drink when you're not talking with your friends anyway, because you're watching a movie. Yeah. Unless you're dealing with 
the disease that is alcoholism. Yes. You can probably safely get away with being sober curious and and making exceptions and not being too rigid, which is kind of like where I'm at. Let me tell you what I told my husband yesterday. Yeah, please. <laughs> I said, you know what I want for our next date? I keep telling him that I, I want a day date because yes. when we go out later into the evening, sometimes 8 p.m. rolls around and we're like, I don't know if we're old or if it's a byproduct of getting married, but we start yawning and then yes. our date night just doesn't end up being as romantic as you want it to be just because you get tired. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, I want you to figure out where is the best espresso martini in town. Mm. I want to go there, but you have to be aware that I will not like it. <laughs> because I actually don't like most alcohol. So I'm going to order it for the vibe, take a sip, make a face, and then give yeah. it to you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and this is a real conversation we had just yesterday. Because again, going back to the, sometimes it's like for the vibe, for the experience. And I actually have a friend who always orders an old fashioned, mm-hmm. but never drinks it. And I'm like, why do you pay $16? Yeah, for expensive. They are expensive. And she's like, it's just like, I just hold it. I feel mm-hmm. some type of way. I don't need it. It's it's almost like a, a weird habit. And I'm like, well, I mean, props to you for like yeah. not feeling compelled to drink something right in front of you. But I wanted to suggest something for people who are looking for something helpful in the immediate term. This yeah. is like a little life coach, Mary, yeah. now, but getting people on board Mm-hmm. behind you in advance is sometimes so helpful if you have like good friends. Because I notice that if I tell my friends in advance, I'd love to come out, but can you actually help me with something? Mm-hmm. It's one of those psychological things where you like ask somebody to help you and then suddenly yeah. they feel like they're on your side and they want to help you. I'm like, can you please, like if I try to order a drink, just remind me of what I said right now at five o'clock that I yeah. don't want to drink. So that when seven o'clock rolls around, I don't order it. And then I'll throw out a reason that's usually related to like saving money. Because I think most people can respect somebody budgeting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually helped a lot because people will be like, are you sure you want to get that? You can just have a taste of mine. And then, you know, you told me you didn't want to drink. I feel like that's been helpful. I think also just like people can be very just set in their ways about like, it's very easy to just decide to go get a drink or go out to dinner. Like it's just the normal thing that we do. It takes more effort a lot of times to come up with other things to do. Like you were saying about a day date, for example. So I also think coming up with other things to do with your friends or people in your life that doesn't revolve around alcohol is a really helpful thing that where you can kind of remember that it's not as important and you can still have fun without it. I think people forget that if they don't have the experience of doing it and they can just feel like, well, what am I going to do? There's nothing to do. You know, everything revolves around alcohol. And if you challenge yourself or your friends to come up with ideas that don't revolve around it, I think people can really be surprised at how much fun you can have. About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, 
I would add it to my self-love playlist. And now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist. And these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist. And full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. Yeah, you wrote, I do far more things because I'm sober than when I was drinking. Not a judgment on people who drink. My husband drinks. You said, regardless of if not drinking is right for you, I invite you to step into living your life with less alcohol and more fully awake. I love the way you use that. With a new lens, you may discover things differently or learn something about yourself or others. Before we talk about the upcoming holidays, Thanksgiving, this company parties, Hanukkah, everything. (laughs) Can you throw out some like date ideas that don't involve alcohol, whether somebody's like in a committed relationship trying to find new things to do or somebody who's like, you know, having a hard time finding some way to meet and get to know somebody without being behind a bar? Any ideas off the top of your head? Yeah. Well, I think in general too, one thing that is just an advantage, I would say, about it because we talk a lot about, right, like how hard it is and the disadvantages. But I think there's actually a lot of advantages to like not drinking very much when you're dating because it makes you or your date more creative. First dates can be awkward. First times meetings can be awkward. And if you plan something around an event or an activity of some kind, it really can help, I think, diffuse the tension. And if there's moments where both people don't know what to say. There's like an activity that you can kind of plan around or participate in that can help. Yeah. (laughs) As as opposed to taking a dramatic. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that that is something that's really helpful just off the bat to recognize alcohol really like dulls our intuition. It dulls our ability to kind of make decisions that are in alignment with our values. It dulls that voice of ours that kind of tells us whether we have a connection with someone or not. So actually like alcohol can really muddy the water of if you're trying to figure out if you have a good connection with someone, because it's hard sometimes you can leave the date and be like, did we actually have a lot in common or were we just like both drunk and not present? And horny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> did you um, and your husband meet when you were sober or before? Yeah. Yeah. So I was two years sober. He was not. We met on the apps technically because he reached out to me and I did not, I like swiped and didn't respond to him. Um, but he, thankfully, we had a friend in common. So he reached out to the friend who was like, I actually think you guys would be a good match and you guys should go out. But our first date was ice skating. So he kind of took that whole doing an activity thing, which was really great. I also think that, you know, if you're trying to think of other things to do, I just think about what activities did you like to do when you were young or what activities would you do if you were going to like 
you know, I don't know, I plan holiday parties for, you know, like the therapy company I have, and I always try to structure it around an activity. So whether that's like bowling or ax throwing, or if it's like the fall pumpkin picking or going on a hay ride, right? Like going somewhere, doing some sort of activity, I think is a really helpful thing to do. And I feel like there are lots more things popping up these days where that is kind of becoming more normalized. So if you think about what you'd like to do or what you used to do when you were younger, I mean, like you could go to a painting class, you could go get ice cream, right? Like all these different things that just don't necessarily revolve around alcohol. And instead you can pick something that revolves around an activity, even going for a walk, I think is a great thing to do. Yeah. You know, in my culture, just like growing up, yeah, Slavic. Yeah. Going for a walk is like the most common, the most romantic, the most, I remember. Oh, I love that. Yeah. When I lived in Canada, I was trying to find just people to hang out with. And this girl who was just, I think we met on social media. We were just trying to get to know each other. We both realized that we were Russian. She's like, let's go on a walk. I'll meet you here. And it was just so normal. And we literally walked, I want to say like six miles and like yeah. three hours just around the river in downtown. It just made me think so much about how the U.S. isn't a big walking culture, not in just in terms of getting somewhere, but in terms of yeah. like as a thing to do. Yeah, And I feel like that is so, I mean, to me, it's romantic. Maybe it's just like the way I was raised. I think it's a great thing to do. I mean, I get like the concern of I don't always say like, go on a hike, right? Because you may have to like drive somewhere and be stranded with someone that maybe you don't want to be with or whatever. But yeah, going for a walk, find a place to go walk, meet someone there, like bring a blanket, hang out for a little bit. Silence isn't awkward when you're on a walk. It's like you can comment on the scenery. Like you can, there are a lot of things that gives you to talk about and you don't have to just stare face to face with someone. I mean, walking is inherently like grounding. You're like in your body. It's easier, I think, sometimes to feel comfortable or communicate what you want to if you aren't just sitting face to face intensely, especially a heated topic. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's why I love podcasts. I'm sure it's why you love podcasts, right? Is you can have this conversation essentially that's one-sided, but you feel connected to someone just in your ears while you're having it. You know, I love to like walk and listen to podcasts. You know, you have a great post right before hitting record. We were talking about ways to self-regulate our emotions Mm -hmm. in a time of so much information and misinformation on social media and time of many humanitarian crisis and dark things happening in the world. You have a really good post that was like five suggestions for staying informed while, Mm. I don't remember what it was, well, like while protecting your peace, essentially. And one of those, which if you could do me a solid and like make it a post on its own, that'd be great. (laughs) Because it was just so good. I didn't find words to it until I read yours. You said, when you're watching TV, you're watching, you're hearing, Mm. right? And you're kind of like engaging all of your senses when you're like watching the news. And a thousand X when you're scrolling through TikTok and yep. it's many different. Right. And a lot of times we watch TV, right? We're watching the news while scrolling. Yes. <laughs> so it's like two times the things. Oh yeah. Once. And it's not beyond me to have my laptop open too. Right. It'll be exactly. three devices for sure. <laughs> and you said- right. like, And then someone's talking to you too. So there you go. Right? Like about what you're watching. Yeah. Like, well, so you said something like choose a medium, mm-hmm. like yeah. listen to the podcast. That's only one sensory experience. I listened to this 
five-hour podcast about slavery. Uh, it's just yeah. like the history of slavery, Dan yeah. Carlin's Hardcore History, which I'm obsessed with. And it's literally a five-hour podcast. And it opened me to so much mm-hmm. without emotionally dysregulating me like on a permanent level, you know, yeah. to that extent. So that really resonated. Or you're like, read the full article, like read yes. one source. So that way you're you're actually absorbing and digesting as opposed to being bombarded. Yes, absolutely. Even if you think about the way the news is structured too, right? It is like sound bites. A lot of times if you watch the news long enough, right? Like they're just repeating the same thing over and over again in a different way. They're trying to get you to come back. They're saying, we'll be back after this commercial break with this thing. And then they don't really tell you the thing and you got to wait for the another, you know, it's just over and over and over again, which is really dysregulating for sure. So I totally stand by that. I think pick one thing. And if you want to watch a video, like maybe mute it and just watch the video too. That's a way to engage just your eyes instead of, you know, being totally taken over by the whole thing. Cause the news is often words across the screen, videos, and obviously you're listening mm-hmm. to it too. Yeah. I do want to talk about one thing I've noticed about myself just over the course of my teens and now into my twenties is that I've had the resilience to heal from many things, Hmm. but it seems like sometimes I have replaced one substance or one obsession with another. Mm -hmm. And in that, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it now, social media, I think is Mm -hmm. like our numbing drug of choice. Like how can we stop this endless cycle of Mm. replacing one substance with another just to somehow numb out in whatever way is socially acceptable at that point in time? Yeah, I think it is so hard. In my book, I, I talk about kind of this theory of like an iceberg and how if you look at our mental health, often whatever we're using on the surface, whatever symptom we have, It's like an iceberg because what's really going on is underneath the surface. And until we start doing some of that deeper healing work, we are going to just keep switching our drug of choice, so to speak, to deal with what's going on under the surface. So I think that there isn't just one solution for it. And I agree with you about social media. I mean, it's something that I definitely (laughs) still struggle with. And I think if your job also involves being in social media, it's really hard to figure that out. I think we need to start small with it. I think sometimes we can also be very broad and just say, you know, I'm totally done with this. I'm totally done with that. And in some cases, like if you have an addiction to alcohol or something like that, it may be that you have to totally become sober from it. But I also think we underestimate just carving out like times during the day where you're not engaging in it. So if we're talking about social media, I'm a really big fan of scheduling time during your day to, you know, maybe you put your phone on airplane mode or you go for a walk or you don't charge your phone in your room so that you can have carved out time like at the beginning of your day or the end of your day where you aren't just on social media. It's hard because it has just become, right, the thing that we pick up. We feel any emotion, even just boredom and the solution and the habit is just pick up the phone. A lot of times, you know, open up social media. But if we can try to pause, we can recognize that, oh, maybe what I feel is anxiety or maybe I'm feeling bored or maybe I'm feeling scared or sad or whatever emotion it is. 
and trying to regulate that emotion before you then start scrolling. Yeah. This morning, my phone was like dead or something. I don't know. It like for some reason didn't yeah. light up. As as I <laughs> it, and I was like doing this so many times. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? And then I was like, wait, I'm not supposed to be checking my phone upon waking. You know what that turned into though? Like I won't check my phone when I wake up, but as I have a toothbrush in my mouth, I will wander <laughs> over. So it's like I've successfully postponed, but is it enough for me. No, especially in the morning, your brain is so vulnerable. Yeah. I try not to go on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really hard and it's not something I'm going to sit here and say that I have figured out because I absolutely (laughs) do not. But I think especially in times of intense turmoil, whether it's in our world or whether there's something that someone is going through, it is important to kind of recognize how we may be using it to regulate our emotions and it's not actually regulating our emotions. It's yeah. just a distraction. For sure. And it helps me to see social media like like alcohol, you know? I'm like, there's a biochemical cascade going on. Yes. There's, It's going to disrupt my sleep. It's going to mm-hmm. make me believe things that might not be true. So many common facets. Yeah. You know, I think it's like something that Gen Z they mean it kind of like tongue in cheek, but I really love the phrase like go touch grass. <laughs> like I know it's like mean that people say it to each other. It's like an insult, but I think it's actually a good reminder of like, sometimes, yeah, we like need to get outside. I haven't we heard that. Better. You haven't? Oh, people use it as like a, they'll be like, go touch grass on oh, TikTok. Oh, that's going to be say. my new insult. <laughs> You're going to say that. My new insult. But it's like, actually like a good piece of advice I say to myself is I'm like, okay, I'm like heated. I am spiraling down the social media rabbit hole of all of these things that aren't even directly necessarily impacting me in this moment. And I need to go take a break. Yeah. Go outside and reconnect with the world that exists outside of our phone. Yeah. And I'm ashamed to admit, like I've even gone as far as to the other day, start a fight with my my significant <laughs> other because I read something on social media that got me feeling all sorts of ways. And then I just totally. bring it up out of the blue and it turned into this whole thing, just like alcohol. Like mm-hmm. I get a little bit tipsy and then something <laughs> happens and it's more dramatic in some ways. Mm-hmm. So go touch grass, I think is so important. <laughs> yeah. We Tell need me- to come outside of ourselves sometimes. For sure. Any ideas why alcohol makes, I'll just speak for myself. Yeah. Mostly makes me so damn horny. (laughs) Um, How can we tap into our bodies in that same way? Because sometimes like it almost does feel like the only thing Mm. that's going to help me get in the mood or the only thing that's going to make me more open to trying new things in the bedroom. Or I remember even when I was dating, like it's the only thing that's going to make this date, you know, feel worth it in a way, right? Yeah. Like, at least I'll get a little buzz out of it. Totally. I can tell you exactly why chemically. So in order to get turned on, there is, it is something called a dual control model. You can read a lot more about this. There's an amazing book called Come As You Are that goes into this. And essentially it means that in order to be turned on, you can't just be turned on you need your turn-offs to be turned off. So a more physical way to say this is essentially, it's like a car. You can't just press the gas. You can't also be pressing the brake at the same time, or you're not going to go anywhere. 
And what alcohol does phenomenally is it turns off our turnoffs. So it doesn't actually necessarily make you like more turned on. It just makes you more open to your turnoffs because for women especially, a lot of our turnoffs are the things that don't make us feel safe or like make us, you know, because we've been told, right, how our bodies look or whatever. Women are more likely than men to be turned off by their own body, right? Or an image that comes into their mind or something like that. And alcohol does a good job of taking you like out of your body in that sense of it disconnects you. The front part of your brain is the part of you that questions things, that reasons with things, that has a lot more like nerves or is kind of the part of you that says, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I don't want to do this right now. Even if you're with like your significant other who you love, right? It's still that part of you that's like, oh, I don't know if this is worth it. Do I really want to like take off my clothes and go through the work to like have sex? Maybe I don't even want to do that. So that is what alcohol does a great job of doing is it turns off that part of your brain, which is why it feels like it makes you hornier. Mm. Is there anything else that can turn off those turn offs so that we can be more turned on? So one thing you can do is you can actually learn more about your turnoffs and your turn ons. Because some of the thoughts, some of them we can't control, right? It could be a thought that, you know, your partner grazes your stomach or something, right? And you can get turned off if you start thinking about your body. So some of that work might be body image work, getting comfortable in your body, thinking about shifting into body neutrality and some things like that. So I have a a workbook and, and my book goes into this, but I think it's really worthwhile to think about what are the things that turn you off? What are the things that turn you on? Talking to your partner about it. Like a lot of times we don't always help ourselves out by being like to our partner, you know, I'm really turned on by like scent or whatever. Can you, you know, wear this cologne? Or I'm really turned on when you talk to me in this way or you say that. I think women, because we are so often shamed for, right, like our sexuality, there's so much there with purity culture, depending on how you grew up, that you may not be very comfortable with your sexuality. I think it's harder for us sometimes to verbalize and actively want to turn ourselves on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think getting comfortable with that, even like if you know, like reading certain books or watching certain things on TV or talking to your partner about something specific, I think trying to get more clear on what turns you on and communicating that with them so that it can be more of a process. Because this whole idea of most people are not just spontaneously turned on. There's normally something that happens that creates a situation where we get turned on. Mm -hmm. And that is not portrayed in the media. It is portrayed often as just like, you know, you're going about your day and then all of a sudden you're really turned on. And for most of us, it does actually take work, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, the fortunate part of it, would it be safe to say that we're a little bit more in control of our thoughts and feelings than perhaps initially portrayed. So for example, like even something as simple as like the cologne, a candle, setting the mood, like things that you and your partner can do for yourself to get that going, as opposed to, you know, waiting for the stars to align where you're both perfectly turned on or going to your quick fix, which is like alcohol. 
Yes, exactly. I think that's where we do have control. We can, especially if we talk to our partner about it and they're aware of it and it can be this kind of co-created thing. I mean, there's like, you know, a lot of therapists who specialize in this talk about the advantages of scheduling sex and kind of like the lead up to it and things like that. And how we often, again, just think that it's not sexy to schedule things, but especially if you're in a long-term romantic relationship, it does take work to maintain your relationship, including your sexual connection. Mm, That's so, so true. Shifting gears now that we've talked about sex, we can talk about family. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Given that, you know, so many holidays are coming up, one thing I've noticed about my family is that Mm. culturally speaking, drinking is almost like a sign of respect Mm. and unity. I don't know if this is like super immigrant, but like, it's almost like a prayer. Mm. So when, you know, the shots come out, we're drinking for this, we're drinking for you. It's more than just peer pressure of like, why aren't you drinking? It's sometimes it is more like, why aren't you participating in this prayer that Mm. the whole table is engaging with for some good cause? You know, luckily I've been practicing my sobriety for years. So it doesn't get directed at me as much. There's also might be aspects of me being a woman and like, you know, in my culture also women shouldn't be drinking that much kind of Mm. thing. But I know that for my husband, for example, God, it gets him. They get him. Mm. And I I can't say that I I wouldn't cave if I was in his position too, because of the way that it's presented. So I'm wondering if there are people with families like that, that are, you know, not just very big on drinking as a way to have Mm -hmm. fun, but almost drinking as a way to connect. Mm. What are your suggestions for that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really, really hard. I think that it depends on how much you want to put into it in terms of how important this is to you. Because as a therapist, my normal kind of reaction to things is like, have you had a conversation with them? Can you talk to them about it? And obviously it depends because not every family is open to having these conversations and the conversations sometimes don't go well. So I want to be mindful of that. But I I wonder too, if there are certain rituals or certain aspects where you can lean into it and then there's other stuff where you can kind of like decline or opt out of. And I think it's, I would probably try to focus on or understand which is the most important one to participate in and where can you kind of back out or moderate? Is it enough to be poured a glass and not necessarily do every shot? Do you need to do one shot with your family, but not do them all? And I think sometimes you don't know that until you maybe have a conversation with your family. And I think it's hard if they don't have a concept of why wouldn't you want to drink with us? What is Mm -hmm. wrong with alcohol? People can become defensive and feel like if you're having a conversation with them, you know, you're insulting me. So I think it's coming from the place of just like, I'm trying to protect myself. Drinking doesn't always work for me. Yeah. I would like to not participate as much in this, but I would love to still be at the table, present, seeing you, connecting with you. I don't think I should have to drink to be able to do that and trying to figure out maybe a middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I will just say health, you know, because sometimes people don't argue with that. But this is such a silly example, 
but my husband's family drinks green tea after every mm. meal and yeah. green tea has so much caffeine and I'm already like a bad sleeper. So yeah. having it at 9 p.m. isn't good for me. Yeah. And when I tell you that for years, this family mm. offered me green tea and every time they would get a little bit, you know, fussy about me saying no, not like rude or anything. Yeah like that, but just like, why? Like, it's fine. I sleep. Why don't you yeah. sleep? You know, yeah. just the little comments that can sometimes mm-hmm. get to you. Five years later, they know to bring me my own tea. Yeah. <laughs> so it might take some time, but eventually people get accustomed. Totally. I think that's a really good example because I think a lot of people are just like, well, they won't understand. They won't understand. So I'm not going to try. And you could be trying for, you know, it may take a couple years, like you said. So if this is something that's important to you that bothers you, I kind of say this about boundaries sometimes too. Like if you're already going through the mental energy of like having this hypothetical fight in your head, you're already expending energy on it. So why don't we actually use that energy to have this conversation, to set this boundary, to start working on this so that you can take care of yourself in the future so that eventually they will get it rather than you just being frustrated every year, you know, for multiple years. And then one year you just freak out at them. Let's yeah. work on it and build it over time. Like it might not work for this Thanksgiving, but five Thanksgiving from now, your future self will thank you. Yes, but it, it won't happen unless you start having that conversation with people now. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. You mentioned that you're sober. Your husband isn't. He is not. Do you ever get annoyed about that? I do. Yeah, we've gotten into fights about it. I think we're pretty good now with it. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely been times where I think like during the pandemic comes to my mind where he drank more like I think a lot of people did because there was nothing to do and he was bored. And it gets frustrating with me where sometimes I'll say like, I don't have the privilege to like disconnect like you do. And this like sucks for me and it doesn't feel fair. I'm a really big believer in the idea of like boundary negotiation and you have to kind of figure out what's really important to you and what's not. I came into the relationship knowing he was, he drank and he came in knowing I was sober. So I think we have an advantage there compared to it's much harder. I think if someone is already in an established relationship or especially people whose relationship is created on the foundation of drinking. And then someone is like, I'm going to stop drinking. I think that can be really hard to navigate. I think it's also the importance of having your own friends, having your own Mm -hmm. separate relationship too, and then kind of negotiating what happens in your house essentially, or things that directly impact you. Yeah. The closest analogy I can think of off the top of my head is like veganism. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I bring it up is because when you're talking about like consumption within the household, it becomes very difficult to like get on the same page to like- Or if you have kids, yeah, that's a whole different thing. Oh yeah. It's like three times a day, you know, your meals revolve around. And I imagine that that's really difficult for like a vegan to be with a non-vegan. But I also think it's quite difficult for a non-vegan to be with a vegan that has done all this research that knows the environmental effects that, you know, believes in the health benefits and and et cetera, et cetera. And I think alcohol is kind of the same way that sometimes I think I am 
really strong when it comes to like my willpower. So if I decide Mm -hmm. I'm not drinking, I'm not drinking. But that doesn't mean that I'm strong when it comes to my lack of moral superiority being around Mm -hmm. other people who are drinking and somehow feeling like I'm better than them or they should be more like me. So I guess my humbling (laughs) curiosity here is like, how do you prevent yourself Mm -hmm. from like trying to change your partner to be more like you because you know all these things about alcohol that maybe he doesn't quite yet accept. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of it is rooted for me in that I cannot consume alcohol safely at all. Like I cannot just drink a little bit and just be regular. Like alcohol really quickly takes over my life. So I think in some ways it may be harder if you're sober curious and you're you're like able to kind of moderate a bit and maybe your partner isn't where I'm very rooted in there is something unique to me about alcohol. I think you bring up a really good point with the moral high ground stuff that can come up because I do think that sometimes when we're judging other people, it is a reflection of us judging ourselves. So if I am getting really like on my moral high ground about not drinking, I do try to check in with myself and recognize, right? Like in the example I gave, it was because I was upset and like jealous about the fact that I couldn't just like zone out. And it was kind of like, must be nice. Wish I could do that. Right. So I think coming at yourself from curiosity and trying to recognize, is this something that is impacting my life? Like, is it something where I'm going out to eat with my significant other and they are like not emotionally present and it sucks because I miss them and I don't feel fulfilled when we go on a date and they're drunk and I'm not? Or is it something where you're just like annoyed that they're doing something that, you know, they don't get hangovers the way you do or it doesn't impact their life? in the same way. And I think the answer to those questions will then lead you to the next step of a good boundary. I think sometimes that I have with my husband is when we go out to eat, a lot of times I ask that he doesn't drink more than like one drink because I want to be emotionally present with him. And once it starts to get into two, three, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like he's as emotionally present with me. Yeah. Yeah. I prepared Stan for months not for a month, maybe about a month. I had this idea. I was like, I know that on a wedding day, it's very common Mm -hmm. to like drink while getting ready because the boys are with the boys, the girls are with the girls. And I asked both of us to be like sober. Granted, I must admit that I did hold the mimosa for the vibe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did not drink much of it, though it did touch my tongue. And we checked in with each other like before ceremony. And I was like, did you drink? And he's like, my dad poured a shot, you know, and at least like, I like your term of boundary negotiation. Like at least he knew that it was important to me to be sober. That doesn't mean that we're going to be like perfect maybe in that scenario where there's like family pressure, for example. But at least we were sober enough that I felt so loved and content and connected during our ceremony. And then we got pretty smashed after. So <laughs> that felt like a, a good negotiation. And I like yeah. your example with what you do when you and your partner go out for dinner too. Yeah. 
And that to me is an example of you were clear about what was important to you. And then you like made decisions based on that, which I think lands very differently than someone being like, well, I don't drink, so you can't drink, right? Mm -hmm. Or I don't get to do this. So my bachelorette is going to be sober. So like you need to make yours sober or whatever. Instead really coming from, is there an actual impact on Mm -hmm. you? Because then that's a different conversation than playing tit for tat. Mm-hmm. 100%. Is there anything else, Amanda, that you want to share with us in regards to sobriety or anything you really want us to walk away with, including mm. where can we find your workbook, Not Drinking Tonight, in case our listeners want a little bit more support around that and to feel like mentally prepared as they embark on their journeys? Yeah. Besides my books, you can follow me on Instagram at Therapy for Women. Or if you want a deeper dive into kind of like what I'm about, my podcast is called Recovered Ish. And it obviously touches on themes of recovery and sobriety, but I'm really interested in how we're never finished. Like we are all works in progress and we're all in recovery from something. And just because, like you were talking about, Mary, you stop drinking or you stop, you know, you get into recovery from your eating disorder. That's really where the work kind of begins. It's not where it ends. So I really like to explore all of the the messiness and the nuance of dealing with your mental health after you've kind of gone through something and how do you take that into your future? Mm, I like that. I also like the wordplay You could have gone with a podcast title called just recovering. Yeah. And you went with recovered ish because I'm assuming there is some kind of like transition rite of passage between like the depth of like recovery itself and then the after, which is what you're referring to of like it expanding into and highlighting other topics of mental and emotional awareness. Exactly. We're never just done (laughs) with our healing. It's always kind of, it's like an onion unwrapping the next layer. And I try to live my life in a way where I know that I'm always going to be a work in progress. And that's kind of what I dive into in the podcast. One last thing before we farewell, myself lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.